This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Hey, everybody, this is Chris from the Truths Podcast. What we've got here is something pretty exciting that we haven't done yet. We've got six new episodes. We're going to release them one new episode per week for the next six weeks. We're going to start off with two episodes about Christian filmmaking, which is a little off topic, but I think you're really going to like where this goes. Thanks for listening to the Truths Podcast, and here we go. In the modern church, we have so many tools at our disposal. Video series on Sunday school, bracelets, music, books, downloadable sermons, YouTube lectures, big Bibles with commentary, little Bibles without commentary, pocket-sized New Testaments. Each of these serves a purpose, hopefully helping us to understand the gospel and to share it with others, right? For the most part, we love these things. Tools like tracts and Bibles can really help. If you're in active ministry, you probably rely on these things all the time and love them. That isn't true for every tool at our disposal. The punching bag of witnessing tools has got to be the humble Christian film. Movies with a message. Here's filmmaker Rich Cristiano with our working definition of a Christian film. Let's say you and I were going to make a martial arts film. The first thing we better fit in there are the fights and the kicks and the punches because that's what the people expect. So when we make a Christian film, it should point to the Lord, and let's have Christian content. That's what makes it Christian. If it points to Christ, it makes it Christian. A movie may be family. A movie may be wholesome, but not Christian. A movie may be inspirational, but not Christian. To me, a movie may have biblical values, but not Christian. What makes it Christian if it points to Christ? If it points to Christ. You know this kind of movie, not a Hallmark film with nice people doing a lot of hugging, but a movie that points to Christ. And for the record, I do not have anything against hugging. Haters gotta hate. It's cool to not Christian movies. Before this podcast and my novel, I used to make Christian films. My brother Nick and I produced Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, which are now available on Amazon Prime and Pureflix. Together, we did maybe 90% of all the tasks on these projects, from writing the scripts to authoring the DVDs. It was a lot of work, to say the least. We hopped into the studio and read comments from Amazon and IMDb about our projects to give you an idea of the scrutiny we're under. These are real, by the way. We decided we wanted to look up some of the reviews of our movies together. We haven't done this, I don't think, ever together before, so we're going to look up some of them. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. No, I don't. know. This is Nick. I'm on IMDb, and I just noticed that we got a whopping 3.4 out of 10 stars. That's pretty good. So let's start that. (laughs) That's higher than I would have (laughs) thought. It's nice to get, there are actually good ones. I, I have to admit, I was going straight for the bad ones because I yeah. wanted to see it because some of them are pretty funny. Like this one, this one is a one out of 10 stars comedy question mark. <laughs> this film was supposed to be a comedy? Exactly what scene was supposed to be funny? <laughs> Most of them? This movie is god awful. <laughs> It's not funny, it's not edgy, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either lying or are friends with the people that made it. <laughs> it puts to mind Napoleon Dynamite and meets Dick Van Dyke. 
Oh. Somebody liked it. Well, it's also because of all the Ottomans we had in the way. There were so many uh, fields of Ottomans. Most of them accidental. All of the believability is thrown out the window when a hot young lawyer falls for a fat guy with a bad haircut and three chins. <laughs> All that to say that some people love Christian films and other people hate them. For example, The Babylon Bee is a Christian comedy satire site, kind of like The Onion. It's actually really fun. Sometimes, though, it cuts a little close to the bone. It frequently speaks directly to the prevailing attitudes among evangelicals. Here are some of their fictional headlines. Rotten Tomatoes introduces new negative scores for faith-based films, in which a fictional Rotten Tomatoes will let you rate a film below zero, if it's a Christian one. There's an article about an exercise bike that forces you to watch Christian movies until you meet your calorie goal. Another has the title, Researchers Now Believe Good Christian Movie Attainable Within Our Lifetime. Really? This is just a sampling of the mixed feelings we as believers have about this tool at our disposal. It's a love-hate kind of thing. But few of us fully understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about Christian films. So I wanted to study the issue. Make a defense of the Christian movie, not as entertainment to go up against the latest Marvel film, but as its own art form that plays by its own rules to a different audience than your standard Hollywood blockbuster. You may think you know all there is to know about the subject. I'll bet you'll be surprised what we uncover together. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the church. I'm Chris Starin. This is Truce. But I, I think I think that you know culturally speaking, um, the, the 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 industry has been so marginalized, and it's been marginalized a lot of times also by the very people that are supposed to be supporting it. That's Amanda Llewellyn. Uh, Amanda Llewellyn. She and her husband, Wes. Uh, Wes Llewellyn. Now working Christian television with 4L Films, largely doing reenactments. Once upon a time, they produced the moment after one and two. They've done a lot of stuff. With their help and that of Rich Cristiano. Rich Cristiano, producer, writer, director, distributor. Produced several feature films, Time Changer, Unidentified, The Secrets of Jonathan Sperry, Amazing Love, A Matter of Faith, and the newest film is called Play the Flute. We're going to look at the history of the art form, the economics of the industry, how a set is run, and why these films are made in the first place. Okay, first up, history. When was the first time you heard about a Christian film? Left Behind? Fireproof? Uh, we think of these movies as a relatively new invention. In fact, they're not. People have been conveying the gospel through motion pictures since basically the invention of cinema. Take Life and Passion of Jesus Christ by the Lumiere Brothers. It was released in 1898. 1898! I bet you didn't even know they had moving pictures back then. Let me play a clip from the original film. I'm just kidding, it was a silent picture. The Lumiere Brothers were some of the founding fathers of cinema. And two years earlier, they'd made movie history. The film in question was made without any cuts. It was 50 seconds long. Films at this time weren't very complicated at all. It's just one shot, some people milling around on a wooden platform, some holding luggage, trying not to look into the camera, and then a train pulls into the station and comes to a stop. That's the whole movie. But this was so new to audiences, something that big coming right at them 
that they stampeded to the back of the theater to get out of the way of a moving train. At least, that's how the legend goes. That people were so scared to see a 3D representation of space, an object heading towards them, that they freaked out. Apparently, there isn't a lot of evidence to substantiate the story. Still, it shows you how crude the audiences and filmmakers were back then. Audiences and filmmakers had to warm up to the possibilities of motion pictures. What could be done with editing, framing, and, eventually, sound and color? The Lumiere brothers were instrumental in creating that language of cinema that we know today. I tell you all of that because just two years after that train famously pulled into the station, the Lumiere brothers made a movie that's just over ten minutes long. It outlines an abbreviated life of Jesus. Only two years after the train thing. This film has edits, costumes, there's a manger scene, Jesus healing Lazarus, the crucifixion, a vast improvement in storytelling because it actually tells a story instead of just showing some random event. They're just discovering how to edit this new technology, and already they're using it to tell people about Jesus. Christian films aren't a new marketing ploy, a desperate attempt to be more like the culture. They're actually a continuation of a trend that started thousands of years ago with statues, murals, and stained glass windows that were used to tell people about the Word of God. And Christian films have made headlines since then, of course. The Passion of the Christ is one of the highest grossing releases of all time. The Jesus film from 1979 has 1,607 different translations, making it the most translated film in history. This movie is regularly taken into places where people don't even have televisions, projected in the center of the village in the native tongue, and presented with a gospel message. Now imagine that. You're sitting in the dirt outside an African village where hundreds of people see the life of Jesus. In a town that may not have running water or electricity, they're watching a movie from 1979. And that project is famous for something else. It's also the most viewed film of all time, with as many as 7.7 .7 billion views, far exceeding Star Wars and Gone with the Wind. Christian films have been around for a long time, and they are actively being used in outreach. Even the process of making a movie like this can be a witnessing opportunity. Again, here's the Llewellyns about how they run their sets. We care about people when they come here. We pray about them, uh, pray about them, pray for them in the mornings. Um, when they get there, pray for their safe return home. We, you know, uh, we, we try to love our crew. We try to hug them at the end of the day when they go home. We try to feed them well. And we have so many people that say they will not do non-union except for our show. I've led a couple of people to the Lord on set. I've, had, uh, I've prayed with a lot of people on set. And um, just recently, uh, two weeks, it was two Tuesdays ago, I prayed with a young man, and the Lord, um, I wasn't even asking for healing. The Lord healed him of pancreatitis. Even the set of a Christian film can be a witnessing tool. Anyhow, now that we've learned some history, let's go to one of the key objections to Christian movies, that they look low budget. The simple response is that they typically are low budget. They have to be. Yet The Passion of the Christ made a lot of money, but not every movie is made by Mel Gibson or is riddled with controversy fueled by Mel Gibson. Most films don't make nearly that much money. 
The next tier down is a film like I Can Only Imagine, which surprised a lot of people by grossing $83 million in theaters. That project benefited greatly from the popularity of the Mercy Me song of the same name. And people like true stories, and they like stuff based on stuff they already know. The film rights to this podcast, by the way, are still up for grabs, but they are very, very expensive. The financial success of I Can Only Imagine has been a long time coming, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It was built on the shoulders of many who went before it, literally hundreds of films that laid the groundwork. Most every Christian film resides one or two tiers lower. For every I Can Only Imagine, there are dozens of much smaller films with little to no budget that get no press. The fact is, we need to talk about money. It, it may sound crass, but I think it'll give you some perspective on the risks that are involved in producing a film. And not just a Christian film, either. It's always a financial risk. Some people estimate that there are over 600 movies made each year. How many of those do you hear of? Not many. How many lose money? Almost all of them. Hopefully, our frank discussion will create some compassion and understanding for this art form. Yes, I said art form. And that will cover right after this message. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Hi, this is Chris. At this point right here is when the audience is engaged in listening. This could be where we talk about your product or your ministry. I need your help to take this show full-time. Uh, if you'd like to advertise on Truce, please send me an email at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. In the meantime, check out my novel Cradle Robber. It's a time travel thriller that also makes you think. You can find it on your favorite ebook platform or at trucepodcast.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, money is important. It's like Rich says. Just the nature of the beast, the distribution's not there, you know. If you could do $10 million worth of business, you'd shoot a 4 or $5 million film so you could pay for it. Most Christian films don't make anything close to $10 million. I always say this. I like to see Steven Spielberg, obviously he's a great filmmaker, take 400000 to make a movie. Let's see how good he does. Let's talk how we got to this moment. Before streaming, before DVD and VHS, there wasn't much in the way of home viewing of Christian films. Of any films, actually, unless they were shown on one of the few TV channels that existed. So Christian movies were shown in churches. My brother and I got started in 1985 in Christian films, and back then it was strictly a rental market. You would shoot a movie on 16 millimeter, and you'd rent it to the church, either to the pastor or youth director, and you had distributors around the country which were called Christian libraries. And they would maybe have five to 10,000 churches on their mailing list and they would do occasional mailings maybe every three months promoting films. What made it good for the filmmaker is all you had to do was deal with them and they were dealing with the customers and they would send you monthly reports like, 
1991, I released a film called The Appointment, which was the first film ever directed. And that year, it did 3,000, almost 3,000 rentals around the country, which was pretty good. These movies were shot on film, distributed on film, shown in church basements, fellowship halls, and youth rooms, maybe against a screen or a sheet hung on the wall. Really? That used to be the entire market before VHS tapes took off. A filmmaker could focus more on the craft and let distribution companies do their thing. But then VHS tapes came along. Remember those things? They put the film rental catalogs out of business. You could see movies on your own at home for a lot cheaper than taking the whole family out. And there were more television networks. Well, these libraries went out, so my brother and I had to make a decision. We've got to go on distribution. We were in distribution, but we were just dealing with the libraries. And now we got to. And so we set up like with CBD and some of the vendors and bookstores and they had bookstore distributors like um, I forget, like STL, where there was a name even before that. And so now we had to go on distribution. In fact, I shot the movie The Appointment in 91. I shot Second Glance in 92. I did not shoot again until 1998. So the Christian filmmakers were forced to go into distribution for themselves. On top of being able to write a whole script, direct, work a camera, hire a crew, edit, and advertise, the filmmaker was on the hook for a lot more. There were Christian bookstores and catalogs, but someone had to get those films to the store. Someone had to pay for the inventory. Each DVD cost about 90 cents to replicate, insert the graphics, and wrap in plastic. Then, of course, you had to ship them. Filmmakers weren't just required to be good at production, they were also required to be logistics experts. Let's do this. Say I walk into a store. I pick up a DVD. Oh, it's $15. Of that $15, 60% goes to the store, just for the trouble of putting it on the shelf. That means that the film company gets $6 per DVD. If I bought one of the Llewellyn's films, they're not getting all of that $6, of course. A distributor or two is going to take their cut first. And the Llewellyn's probably paid about $1.25 after shipping to print the physical disc and get it to the store. So that only leaves $4.75. $4.75. And that doesn't include loss, damage, returns, marketing, or DVDs that don't get purchased. Let's throw some math at you. When you think that maybe a decent pay for an American is, say, $100 a day, you'd have to sell 22 copies every single day just to cover one employee to handle shipping and marketing. Not even the cost of making the movie itself, just one employee. And since I made the movies with my twin brother and split the money, we'd have to double that. We never made that kind of cash, but you catch my drift. If we had families to provide for, we'd have to sell a lot of DVDs to put food on the table. That's a lot of risk. Suddenly, these costs add up because boxes of DVDs have to be stored somewhere and someone has to ship them. I literally have dozens of my films under my bed right now waiting for a home. When DVD was king, there was money coming in, but not that much. I mean, at one point, the moment after was the biggest um, money-making faith-based film out there at one point, and it only ever made, I, I don't know, two million? Yeah, two million, maybe a little more, and that was divided so many ways. It's not like it all went in my pocket by any means. So at best, you could hope to make back in the heyday of DVD sales was maybe two million dollars before expenses. 
$2 million may sound like a lot of money, but remember that a lot of filmmakers didn't pay themselves for years of work. You might get a little influx of cash, but it came after years of no paycheck at all. While the burden of distribution expenses was on the filmmaker, sharing a film became much easier. Here's Wes. Because they are, you know, evangelical tools, um, people will buy them to, to give them away or to, or to share them with their friends. They, they see a movie they like and they go, oh, I'll buy, you know, like Amanda said, we'll buy five, ten copies of that because that's something, I, you know, it's really good and I can give it to my friends and then, like she said, they'll watch it. See, I remember driving around with Rich Cristiano when we were working on his film Unidentified and the trunk of his car was always filled with lots of his DVDs. He'd meet someone on the street and just hand them copies of his films. DVDs and VHS made it way easier to share your movies because you didn't have to arrange a screening on 16mm film. And again, the market changed. DVD sales are way down. According to Rich, DVD sales are 15% of what they once were. 15%. That's 1-5. When was the last time you bought a DVD for full price? Exactly. So the DVD retail market has basically dried up which, surprisingly, has led to another twist in our story, the revival of the old way of watching films. This kind of reminds me, Chris, when 16mm went out and VHS came in, and I went six years and didn't shoot a movie for the transition. I feel like we're in another major transition period here. It'll equal itself out, and my brother and I have realized the theater now becomes more and more important. That's right, the theater. Even independent filmmakers like Rich should be focusing on the theater because churches can rally together and support these films. So what we're doing now is one-night showings. We get a local individual church ministry to sponsor the movie for one night to book the theater on a Tuesday night. For example, I live a mile from the Regal 22. I will book the theater over there, 376 seats, and the night I show my film, I'll sell 350 tickets. I know if I put 350 people over in the Regal 22 on a Tuesday night, I'll have more people in that one theater than they'll have in the rest of the theaters twice over. I mean, they might have 200 people in the rest of the screens because it's slow. So this to me and what we're planning to do with this new film, I'm planning to start it in theaters September 25th and literally I'm planning to leave it in the theater for a year. And he's involving others to help spread the word. If a ministry gets involved, it can be a fundraiser for them. Say a church youth group is heading out on a mission trip. They can host a screening of Rich's new movie and get a percentage of the ticket sales. Rich gets a little money for the film, the theater owner is happy because they sell popcorn, and the youth group earns a little extra cash for their trip. It's a cool system for indie filmmakers to reach their budget goals, and you don't see the Avengers sharing revenue with youth groups. Those jerks. So if a filmmaker is going to make back the money spent on creating the film, they can piece together money from TV sales, movie screenings, DVDs, church screenings, and now, streaming services. Streaming has made it so easy to share. It seems like everyone subscribes to at least one of these platforms, but it's, of course, much harder to make money on them. Take Amazon Prime. Traditionally, Amazon has paid 15 cents per hour watched. In other words, when you watched Bringing Up Bobby, it's the same thing with God. If you care about God, it just shows which is 90 minutes long, you get about 22 and a half cents if you made it all the way through the whole thing from beginning to end. Let's go back to our model. 
If I'm the only employee of our company and I need $100 a day to survive, that means that the movie has to be watched from beginning. I'm sorry. Who said that? I can't see from the light reflecting off your preppy shirt. To end. You know what? You smell like a dryer sheet. 445 times each day. Over. If you care about God, it just shows. And over. You know what? You smell like a dryer sheet. And over. I'm sorry. Who said that? That was hard enough. But Amazon changed their pay scale. It's a little complicated, but to summarize, unless you're one of the top providers, you only get six cents per hour watched. Six cents. For me to make that $100 a day, it now means that bringing up Bobby has to be streamed 1,053 times per day. 1,053. It's hard to make money on streaming. Again, we're not talking about getting rich here, just paying one person a living wage, and not to mention recouping the cost of making the film. While people complain that Christian films look cheap, we rarely take the time to do the math. How can we expect Christian films to have a decent budget if they make so little money on streaming? That's why Rich likes the theater idea so much. I tell you all of this to add some perspective. By and large, Christian films look cheap because they have to be produced cheap. As technology gets less expensive, as audiences seek out movies with a gospel message, that can change. There's a new influx of cash coming into the market, which may be a good thing. Well, time will tell. The important thing to remember is that this market was built on the backs of filmmakers like the Llewellyns, the Lumieres, the Cristianos, and many more. Even if you've never seen a Christian film that you like, be praying for these independent filmmakers. Many of us have used our own money to make these movies in an effort to equip other believers so that the world might know the hope we have in Christ. That's a high calling, one that's worth a little more than a negative review on Rotten Tomatoes. Did not like video. I do not like this video at all. It was boring and did not hold my interest. My grandchildren made the same comment. Just wasn't for me. <laughs> you threw the kids in on it. Don't waste your money. <laughs>